This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random, except for this episode. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 49th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm beginning the start of a new series, the details of which I'll talk about later. But it starts here, with Doom 2099, issue number one, from Marvel Comics, cover date of January 1993. But first, a little feedback. A few episodes back, in the context of the Shadow, Song of the Dragon miniseries, I talked about endings and some literary criticism. So I was hoping that one of our English teachers would respond, and Professor Neil Stanifer, the grammar merchant, did just that. You invoked my name in talking about endings, and like Haster the Unspeakable, I never ignore an invocation. Having said that, I'm not sure literary theory has a lot to contribute that would contradict what you set down in the episode. Apart from dressing up common sense in 50-cent words, we ivory tower literary academics read books much the same way everyone else does. We bend spines, we dog-ear pages, and we've even been known to hurl books with great force when the ending didn't measure up. Yes, a bad ending can spoil a good book, usually by failing to resolve subplots or gasp the main plot or by doing violence to the motivations of characters in the story, such that they fail to surprise convincingly. Any action should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Though not all of those parts need to be present within the story itself, they should at least be available by inference. He mentions a few literary exceptions like James Joyce, but adds that, by and large, a bad ending is one which fails to resolve the action of the story, or which resorts to distorting character motivations to wrap things up. I had talked about whether a good ending can save a bad book, and he says that it depends on why the book was bad, and that really makes sense. If the book lacks character development, or is full of plot holes, I'm not sure it's worth reading the ending at all, much less evaluating it. He then starts to talk my language. As a teacher of business you would probably call reading such a book an opportunity cost when other better books are available. And anyone who persists in reading a bad book to its potential good ending is probably falling victim to unit bias, or worse, the sunk cost fallacy. Which, by the way, Neil, is me. I have trouble stopping reading a book in the middle. When I say that, I mean I can't remember the last time I did stop reading a book in the middle. I have similar trouble even with TV seasons. It's very rare for me to be able to stop watching a show during a season. Once I'm in, I'm in. Back to Neil. I think that's probably the best that can be said of a bad book with a good ending, that it repays suffering with a modicum of satisfaction. On balance, the journey probably wasn't worth the trouble, but at least the destination was a small compensation. It sounds to me, listening from your synopsis of these four issues, that Grell's book was definitely worth reading, 
even though it may have gotten soggy in the middle. And I agree with that point on the Shadow miniseries, Neil. The ending definitely made up for that bit of a stretched middle in book two. Thanks for the insights. I also heard from two members of the online ROM fandom community who wrote in on the Micronauts issue from last episode. Obviously, there's the the Bill Mantlo connection there. Our old buddy Shlomo summed up what I love about cheap comics. Even if it's a beat-to-hell copy, any Micronauts from the Mantlo Golden Run being sold for only 25 cents? That's almost criminal. It's a shame that he left the series so early, he says, referring to Golden. He then, of course, mentions Rom, talking about how bad it was when Sal Buscema left that title. Daywalker wrote in shortly after I posted the preview on Facebook that a Micronauts issue was coming just to say how much he was looking forward to it. I love Rom and the Micronauts, along with much of what Bill Mantlo wrote, so an upcoming episode like that definitely gives me something to look forward to listening to. Hopefully, Daywalker liked what he heard. And then, let's close out the feedback segment with perhaps the most outrageous email we've ever received from the Bradley man, Mr. Bradley Null, who has a great email closing signature line, by the way. Faster than a speeding turtle. More powerful than a loco dog. Able to leap? It's Bradley man. But here is what he said. I was a child of ten when I bought this comic book off a drugstore spinner rack. I remember seeing a Croyer merge with the world mind. That moment is the one that finalized one of the most controversial views I have expressed over the years. On playgrounds, in bars, backstage at Ren fairs, during tabletop RPGs, I have been forced to defend my position any time this series comes up. I use that panel as the defense for my extremely controversial position, which I have held since my tenth summer. Micronauts is better than Star Wars. I'll just leave that there and move on. Bradley. You know what? I think I'll leave that there and move on as well. To our issue for this episode. Dune 2099 number one at a cover price of $1.75, meaning I acquired this book at an 86% markdown. The cover by the excellent Pat Broderick shows Dune in all his glory in a snazzy blue and silver outfit with lightning crackling in the background. And I want to mention the logo where the two O's in Doom are shaped like the eye holes in his mask complete with rivets nice the story titled muses of fire was written by john francis moore with art by pat broderick the story starts in a marketplace in the latverian village of antiqua merchants haggle over prices here in the nation's main marketplace it specializes in shady black market goods such as access codes nabbed from corporate computer nets and databases. A dealer tries to lowball a teenaged gypsy hacker named Wire, saying he'll only pay 3000 not the 5000 they agreed to. No one but me could freestyle into Tiger Wild's security net for these access codes. 
This argument over price threatens to become physical. But Wire's tough friend, Zandra, rushes to his rescue, and she threatens the dealer with her energy shiv. Corporate guardsmen are always hovering above the marketplace, and a gunship arrives to arrest the dealer. Wire and Zandra flee on her land speeder. I'm going to try to lose that crowd sweeper in the castle ruins. Suddenly, a light show of energy coalesces to the form of a human figure wearing a hooded green cloak, silver armor, and an iron mask. Disoriented by his new surroundings, the mysterious figure speaks. My castle? Destroyed? What has happened here? How long have I been away? The guardsmen arrive in their vessel and demand that the cloaked figure identify himself. You dare threaten me? Don't you know who I am? He asks, destroying the law enforcement hovership with an energy blast from his armored gauntlets. I am... This is the title page, and it is a nicely composed shot of this scene, Doom destroying the ship, but in classic FF style, there's also a shot of Doom in the background, a floating head and curled fist hovering over the scene. Assuring the fearful pair that he won't hurt them, he asks them about his castle and what year this is. He is informed that it is 2099. The castle has always been rubbleized, and that Latveria is being run by someone calling themselves Tiger Wild. Much later than I expected, it is time to make Latveria remember. The capital city of Gojradia was once the promise of modernity to a backward nation. Now simply the industrialized game board for the intrigues of its current sovereign. That sovereign is another armored figure, Tiger Wild, but his armor is orange, and he also possesses an orange furred face with dark markings. Tiger Wild. Inside his office tower, he argues with Tyler Stone of Alchemax about a failed assassination attempt on Wild. Stone denies any involvement on Alchemax's part, but Tiger Wild isn't fooled and he dares Alchemex to go to war with him. Wilde consults with his advisor, a gypsy woman called Fortune, whose tarot cards predict a shift in power. The judgment, a change in position, were nearing a crisis point. Right on cue, Dr. Doom blasts his way into Wilde's office, sending a guard flying. Do not make me waste any more energy on dog soldiers. I am Victor Von Doom, and I demand to see Tiger Wild. He demands that Wild leave Latveria and give up his power. Wild's other advisor, Zone, assumes that this is simply another in a long line of Doombots that they faced. Wild looks forward to the entertainment value of a malfunctioning robot. Doom asserts that he is the real deal by choking Tiger Wild, who retaliates with a lot more force than Doom expects power reserves down, didn't anticipate a cyborg. He is able to destroy Wilde's hand, but is taken down by the cyborg and is in fact unmasked. Wilde and Zone are surprised to see that Doom's face is too young, 
and too unscarred to be who he claims. Tiger Wilde takes the opportunity to burn the face. History says Doom's face was hideously scarred. Allow me to complete the masquerade. Fortune, the tarot reader, volunteers to cart the body off to Wilde's neurotext, but in truth, she has a different destination in mind. Her tarot cards lead her to believe that he is worth more alive. Four days later, Doom wakes up in a tent near a river. A mute boy named Vox has been keeping silent vigil over him. Doom's burned face has been bandaged. Leaving the tent, he sees that he is in familiar surroundings. As a child, my family camped here as we traveled south from Gojradia. He officially introduces himself to Fortune and meets her tribe of Zephyro Gypsies. This is the tribe that he was a part of. I grew up hearing stories of Latveria's Zephyro-born monarch. She shows him a necklace with the crest of doom, saying that it's been in her family for generations. I gave this to Boris, the one man I called friend. They are bound together by gypsy blood. Doom swears he will overthrow Wild and free Latveria. Fortune offers her support and that of the tribe, but Doom wants to know why he saw her standing with Wild, advising him. Reading the tarot for him protects my people. She also tells him that Vox's healing magic saved him, a claim he brushes aside. I have been close to death many times in the past. The cyber savant Wire runs a diagnostic on Doom's armor, pronouncing his suit's technology woefully obsolete. Accessing the cyberspace visor jack in his skull, Wire does some creative hacking and tracks down the cutting-edge tech that can give Doom an upgrade. In seconds, he's found everything he'll need. Only one problem, he tells Fortune and Doom. We have to leave the country. Wire and Xandra join Fortune and Doom on a trek through the forest. This is crazy, Xandra whispers. Why should we trust someone who believes he ruled Latveria a hundred years ago? Doom gives her the opportunity to stay behind, but no, she is committed to the task, if only to make sure you don't get Wire killed. They arrive at a hidden escarpment in a mountain where Fortune's medallion is literally the key to opening the passageway. When your great-great-grandfather Boris was alive, Fortune, I gave him this as a means to leave the country, should I fall from power. Inside, they find a cloaked jet called the Diamond Hawk, which, despite being a hundred years old, still flies just fine, thank you. Four hours later, they land off the coast of Peru, on land owned by the Pixel Corporation, another of the huge companies that run the world here at the tail end of the 21st century. The crew encounters a disturbing lack of security as they find the Cyber Neurologic Laboratory. Unbeknownst to them, they are being watched by a security guard who has taken an interest in their appearance. At least, that's what he tells the corpse of the guard on the ground before him a corpse that looks just like him. Doom announces that he seeks Dr. Celia Quinones. 
she assumes she is being shanghaied by another corporation. But Doom assures her that he is a free agent and offers her freedom from corporatized slavery to Pixel in exchange for her services. Doom undergoes an operation to be upgraded to the latest tech, but he insists that she leave the scars as a reminder of his pain. Wire explains that nanites are being injected into Doom's bloodstream, which are designed to enhance his neural and motor responses. They wonder if he is the real Victor Von Doom. Fortune replies that if he isn't now, he will be after the operation. Well, if he can handle the restructuring of his brain and doesn't go mad. During the procedure, under the influence of the sedative, Doom dreams of his past life, involving, of course, the FF. Richards and his family. Again and again and again. The fever dream actually casts some doubt on his true identity, but he awakens with new armor, lighter and stronger than previous. His dark gray armor is now a spiky, polished blue-gray, and his trademark green cloak has been replaced by a nice dark blue. The doctor wants to run more tests, but Doom has no time for that. I have been reborn, and every moment counts. With newfound resolve, he proclaims, Dr. Doom is dead. Long live Doom! And we actually close with a quote from Shakespeare's Henry V. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of intervention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. <laughs> One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. And we're back. A few points of information. Yes, this is my favorite series of all time. So though I will do my best to be objective, fair, and balanced as I review issues in this series, understand the high regard I hold it in. You have been warned. And yes, I do own all 44 issues of Doom 2099. And I've owned them for quite some time, to be honest. Which means, technically, I did not actually purchase this one for 25 cents. But, hear me out. Hear me out. I have seen, with my own eyeballs, the first 15 issues in quarter bins. 
and therefore they legitimately belong in the Quarterbin database. So says Professor Allen. And yes, I tossed out the whole random thing in this episode. I flat out picked this issue. And it's my plan that in every episode that ends in a 9 to revisit the series. 2099, episode 49, 59, 69, 79, 2099. Makes it easy to remember. Now, for the first episode covering this series, I just wanted to talk about this first issue. But like I've said before, I'm considering doubling up on the issues occasionally. So I very tentatively have scheduled issues two and three for coverage next time when we get to episode 59. But that is getting way ahead of ourselves. Let's spend some time reveling in the awesomeness of this issue. I have said in the past... And I think it's often taken as a joke, but I don't really mean it that way. And that is this. Doom is not a villain. He is an anti-hero. Or at least, I like stories that treat him as such, and not as just another mustache twirler. And the very first thing I love about this series is the premise that it casts Victor Von Doom in the role of protagonist. This is bold and audacious. And as the series goes on, he bounces back and forth between anti-hero and hero, depending on who he's opposing or, or conversely, who is opposing him. But again, that gets us too far ahead of ourselves. Trying the best I can to stick just with this issue uh, for this episode. Now, one of the underlying issues of the series is the mystery of whether this is in fact the historical personage of Victor Von Doom. All we know at this point is that he's not a Doombot. He is an actual human. And he did have the old Doom's cloak and mask, the seemingly authentic outfit. But we don't know where he's been for the last X number of decades. And what about his youth? And his face is unscarred when he arrives in 2099. And, And under the influence of the anesthesia and the meds, He daydreams somewhat like Doom would, but not totally. It is a legitimate mystery. And I have to say, I really like the take that John Francis Moore has on Doom here in this issue. There's not much, if any, of the classic third-person dialogue, and I don't remember if that continues, but the sense of imperiousness, the sense of purpose, the sense of drive that characterize Doom, they're all there. I like that scene when they're tromping their way to the hidden airplane, where Xandra isn't so sure why they're following this guy who appeared out of the blue a few days ago, making some, let's be fair, uh, bold claims. Let's be honest, crazy claims. And Doom isn't angry. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't blast her. He gives her the opportunity to walk back. Her doubts don't offend him. They don't hurt his feelings. They also don't slow him down at all. He has a plan, a purpose, a mission. He's going to accomplish it. And whoever wants to join him is welcome to. And then there's that line about death, that the mute Vox had healed him from his near death at the hands of Tiger Wild. But that is of no concern to him because he has been close to death many times in the past. Those are both 
really nice character beats and add a real insight into just who this version of Doom is going to be. John Francis Moore stays with the title for about half of its 44-issue run, by the way. So again, here in the first issue, obviously, we bring our own past experiences with and feelings about Dr. Doom to this issue. But still, I think Moore is already shading in his version, his, his take on the character. We also have a smaller mystery going on here, and, and that is, what's up with that mysterious security guard, or fake security guard, I guess, who let all of this happen in Peru? Is he part of Pixel Corp? Is he a higher up in that company, or is he an outside agitator related to one of the other mega corporations? And why does he seem to be helping Doom get to this doctor, get these upgrades? Hopefully, we'll get that answer pretty soon. Of course, the issue's not perfect. As much as I like it, there are some weak points. First, all of the 1993 lingo. The hip-speak and the, the, the hacking stuff. Problem is, when you're going to project a hundred-plus years into the future, you have to do better than come up with very minor name changes for things that are basically minor extrapolations from where we are now. You have to go way outside the box, both in, in terminology and in technology. I know that this is a post-apocalyptic setting of sorts, and perhaps some of the historical records have been lost to time, but I do know from other books in the 2099 universe that heroes from the prior century are still remembered. Spider-Man and Thor, in particular, have followings. And so I don't think it is just my pro-Doom bias here, but really, the kids don't recognize him. They're in Latveria in the ruins of a castle? Has cosplay disappeared totally by 2099? That part didn't really make sense, especially for Wire, the guy with all of Wikipedia right there in his Google Glass. But then again, some others did know about Doom, know about the scars, for example, know some of the history. So maybe I'm over-reading or I missed something there, but there seemed to be a lot of inconsistency there about who would have known how much about such a critical historical figure in Latveria as Doom. That actually raises another question, or maybe two related questions. One is about the broader 2099 world that might not be answered even in this series. Is how did we get from our era of the Avengers and Cap and Thor and Spidey and the FF to this world? where governments and corporations seem to have merged. It's sort of a Blade Runner future. How did that happen? And specifically for this book, for Doom 2099, how did Latveria fall? How did the castle fall? But back to the weak points of this issue. 100-year-old planes that have not been maintained? Uh, Yeah, let's just say I'm not getting on that particular aircraft. And... Tiger Wild? Well, that's a 90s thing. The orange striped fur, the tiger motif, it's all a bit too literal for me. And this character is where the 90s-ness of the book shines through the most. And I don't mean that in a good way. He's over the top, he's not subtle, he's not nuanced. The only function I think he might be serving is to be the villain 
to be the mustache twirler so readers will believe that Doom is legitimately the sympathetic character in this book. I don't know if that was the purpose for making Tiger Wild such an extreme caricature of an antagonist. I doubt in 1993 that's what they were thinking. I'm more inclined, sadly, to think that Wild is just designed the way he is because that was cool in 1993 and they were going for cool. In retrospect, 20 plus years later, it's not so cool. And this is just an odd coincidence because this book came out two to three years before Tiger Woods turned professional as a golfer, but the interlocking TW logo for Wilds Company is really similar to Tiger Woods' personal branding. So, no fault of anybody whatsoever, but that did bump me from the story a little bit. By the way, that Shakespeare quote at the end, I'm pretty sure that they last for a long time. I don't remember how long. I I did a reread of this series maybe four or five years ago, and unless my middle-aged brain is totally not working as well as it should, I think we'll be running into these quotes for quite some time. The verdict on Doom 2099, number one. Come on. I am not unbiased, and you can't have expected me to be. I am reveling in covering this series. But I don't think I'm out on a limb. This series, along with Spidey 2099, are pretty much universally considered the class of the 2099 books, head and shoulders above everything else in the line. A very common Quarterbin book, I have to admit. I've seen many copies over the last few years. And it's a bargain. A terrific Quarterbin deal. That wraps up my coverage of Doom 2099 number one, bringing episode 49 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. I want to give a shout out here to David Ellis and Amy Morgan, the hosts of the short-lived 2099 Bitmapped podcast, which released about a dozen episodes in 2011. In episode three, they covered this issue. So if you want another take on it, and or the first few issues of all the other 2099 books, I encourage you to check that podcast out. Again, it's 2099 Bitmapped, and it was still available on iTunes the last time I checked. In episode 50, we're going to cover the most quintessential quarterbin book of all time. A book so overproduced that it may very well be the single reason why we have quarterbins. So, along with some podcasting buddies, some podcasting luminaries, and comic book collecting veterans, I'll be looking at, yes, Turok, Dinosaur Hunter number one, from Valiant Comics, cover date of July 1993. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. 
Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor!